Hi, and welcome to the Design Systems Podcast. This podcast is about the place where design and development overlap. We talk with experts to get their point of view about trends in design, code, and how it relates to the world around us. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Knapsack. Check us out at knapsack.cloud. If you want to get in touch with the show, ask some questions, or generally tell us what you think, go ahead and tweet us at the DSPod. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Jihad Afonim, the head of design at VMware, and Scott Mathis, uh, who's the co-founder of the Clarity Design System there. Welcome to the program, guys. Glad to have you on. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. So kind of diving into this, um, you know, when you were envisioning your guys' design system, you, you called it Clarity, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when you were envisioning Clarity and kind of the the way that this design system was coming together, tell me a little bit about the the genesis and origin story here. I know it's about three years old. It serves a bunch of different products. Talk to me a little bit about what Clarity is. Yeah. So um Clearly, it started from the need of a specific product that uh, both of us and a couple other people were working on um, called, at the time, was called EvoRail. And the goal was to think about how can we bring a bunch of different experiences from VMware together and, uh, you know, be able for a user to be able to go through these experiences successfully. And one of the first issues we faced is that these experiences don't even look and behave the same way. Uh, so we started building, you know, specific components and small uh, visual patterns to bring that experience together within a single product. Uh, and as it grew, it, it was clear this problem is not specific to EvoRail. So you guys were looking at solving the need for one particular product, and it had a lot of those like little repeatable UI elements. And so are these sort of the traditional kind of components that we think of, things like buttons and cards and that sort of stuff? Yeah, think about going through a workflow in a specific product, um, especially as we were trying to kind of bring different experiences that were built by different teams in, in that product. Uh, but think about going that experience and realizing that, you know, step one has a different button style than step two. This is even this is not even the biggest experience issue in that flow. But hey, you know, that's obviously terrible. And as we started bringing these things together, we, we realized this is, you know, th- this is a real problem that's not specific to that product. And we have the beginnings of a real solution that could be not specific to that product. Gotcha. So tell me a little bit then about that initial decision making when you were sitting there looking at that that first product and thinking hey you know what this is actually a problem across this ecosystem was it about the consistency was it about the quality of the design was it was it all of the above what were some of the the reasons why you were really looking at a more systems based approach to these things it's really all the above so it is a it is consistency it is quality consistency was a huge deal uh, vmware is a is a big company with a lot of different products uh, from, coming from a lot of different teams. A lot of them are designed for the same personas that end up using these products together for similar use cases. And um, cohesiveness more than consistency really matters a lot. So how we ship a cohesive experience matters a lot. And visual cohesiveness is the first step in both making those cohesive experiences, but also it's the first step of removing the visual element of inconsistency so we can find what's under, underneath. Gotcha. So, so this sort of genesis led you to ultimately having a a design system that works for hundreds of products across the whole corporate ecosystem. Talk to me a little bit about what it looks like now. Um, So from from humble beginnings, where did everything end up? So today we have a a dedicated design systems team. Um, We have uh, over 100 different projects and products and, and services within VMware that use Clarity. 
uh, in addition to dozens external products uh, or external companies that uh, use Clarity as well, since Clarity is open source. So what was a, a very, you know, a specific solution to a specific problem became a design system that's used by thousands of engineers and designers within and outside of VMware. So, you know, kind of as a part of this early conversation, you had said something that I thought was a little bit, I guess, spicy in terms of, of a take, and that is when you you have this tool that you've built that is open source, that is uh, serving a broad constituency, one of the big things that you were focused on is not building it from scratch. So tell me a little bit more about that that thinking around, you know, why wouldn't you basically say, like, let me build my custom design system for VMware. What what did you use as a basis and why did you choose it? We usually say in the Clarity team that basically we really tried not to build Clarity as it stands today, or we really tried to not build Clarity from scratch the way we did it. And we looked around and we tried to figure out what can we use or reuse to do this. Um, a lot of what's in the design system is very hard engineering problems, systems problems that need to be solved for so many people and so many teams in so many different environments. Some of these problems have been solved and resolved now. So it's really about how much do you want to face these problems independently so you have the label of an independent system from scratch versus how much is it about the reason you're building the design system, which is making these products successful, bringing consistency to visual design and, and so on and so forth. I think uh, uh, Scott might have a, a couple of thoughts on this, especially since he's been uh, in the trenches throughout. Sure, yeah. So in the early days, not building it from scratch, there was a lot about uh, adoption, right? So introducing something that was completely unknown to people and completely unfamiliar was going to negatively impact uh, how quickly we could be adopted across the company. So we stuck with some tried and true formats there. As we've moved towards framework independence, we find ourselves actually building a lot of things from scratch. But that's because um, the the web component landscape is still forming. So um, we're solving a lot of problems that nobody nobody has solved yet. So that, I think that's that's the line in the sand kind of. Are you solving something that no one has solved yet uh, versus are you just reinventing the wheel just to do it? Yeah, I mean, uh, we like to pick on the button um, in this show. And so if you think about like like a solved problem, buttons are, are a pretty solved problem in the world. And so it might be worthwhile to just grab somebody else's button mm-hmm. um, and use that as, as the basis for your design system. Whereas something that is like, you know, some some function-based design token system or something like that, or adaptive color palettes or something might be an area of exploration that there isn't a lot of precedent for, and there isn't a lot of solutions out there, and that might be something that you want to build. Absolutely, yeah. So when you think about that decision to make Clarity open source, what really drove some of that decision-making, and how has that kind of led to to benefits either from the ability to to access clarity, the ability to contribute to it. What are some of the, the dividends that that's paid for you guys? Yeah, I think so. The decision to open source clarity was driven by a couple of different things. Um, one was uh, uh, our ability to ensure clarity remains independent. Um, in a large company, the, the pull and push of different forces that influence a platform, especially an internal platform, make it difficult to remain truly independent versus, you know, listening to the uh, um, top product or the top product that adopts your platform first or, you know, all of these different uh, forces on a platform in the company. Having it open source allows us to say Clarity is an open source project. Clarity has its open source backlog and community. 
Um, and whether you're inside or outside of VMware, you're consuming it the same way. This enabled us to truly spend the time in building a platform versus necessarily being too reactive in how we sponsor or support uh, specific products. There are good reasons, obviously, to doing this anyway. Participating in the community that we use a lot is, is, was a big deal for us. So being true open source citizens matters a lot. But the independence was, was a really big deal. Interesting. So thinking about how you pitch something like that, of of like, okay, so I have this really awesome project. It serves a whole lot of products inside the company or, or maybe at the time it only served a handful. I want to make this an open source project and I want you know, my job at VMware to largely be building, curating, managing, upgrading this open source community. What kind of conversation, like, like give me a, a perspective on what that looked like when you were having that conversation with you know, your boss or, or other people at the company that were, were setting up this whole system? Yeah, I think the, the interesting thing is when we open sourced Clarity, I think we were six months in or, or, you know, less than 12 months, which meant that it wasn't as popular even internally as it is today. Um, that's a good thing uh, in retrospect, um, because it enabled us to say there's this small project that we're working on. There's really no IP in it. Uh, there's a lot of engineering work, but there's really no VMware IP in it. Um, so we'd like to put it out there and build a community around it. That, that's a good story. Um, uh, I think it would have been a different way to think about if we open source Clarity today, like if Clarity wasn't open source today. So having it be small, yet there's something there, something that can benefit the community that we can put VMware's name on was, was a good story that we were able to sell pretty quickly, actually. We were also able to build a, a business case around open sourcing it because a lot of our products have um, partners, third-party vendors and whatnot that build, plug, mm -hmm. build plugins for our applications. And to have a sort of coherent and cohesive design that was shared between uh, our products and our third-party vendors and partners gave us a pretty strong business rationale for doing it, which I think helped as well as being small and sort of slightly under the radar at that point in time. Gotcha. So you could be this sort of organization that was small, scrappy, sort of nascent, and you already had kind of a built-in ecosystem because you already had a bunch of partners of, of the business that were looking for a solution like this. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's a really good point. I think the, the partner angle gave it a very good business case for the business, irrespective of Clarity's view of the world. Clarity independently as a team or as a design system. So when you were thinking about that business case, what kind of ROI were you pitching there? Were you talking about things like accessibility? Were you talking about things like speed of development? Were you talking about things like consistency? And and really, what did you kind of put forward as the, the main value that you guys were delivering with Clarity? I think the two values that we still talk about internally, which have, have not really changed since the beginning, one is the consistency and cohesiveness we can drive for the end user. So if we think of user experience of VMware uh, four or five years ago versus today, there is a huge difference in looking at a product, understanding or a UI, understanding it's coming from VMware and actually being able to use the different products the same way. The other one is the internal view of Clarity, which is we are helping the company do something once and, and use it a hundred different times. The, the ROI on this internally alone, even if we take out the external piece is, is huge. Um, uh, we did not talk about accessibility at the time, although, you know, that might be a really good topic to talk about how we're bringing clarity and accessibility together. Yeah. And so what would you say is that that key metric that gets looked at when, you know, you or, or other people inside of the company are sitting there evaluating the success of clarity? 
is it about that speed of innovation, that ability to basically say like, hey, we captured some product innovation once and now we get it in a hundred different products for a very low cost? Is it about the the speed? Is it about you know that consistency? And how did you really measure those in, in more concrete terms? Yeah, I, I think it, internally, one of the things that we talk about is, is how we enable other teams to innovate by focusing their time on their users and their use cases versus focusing on time and building and rebuilding components. So how do we, you know, how do we get teams to, uh, simply move from I need to build a product to I have the whole beginnings of a UI ready within within minutes versus I have to start from scratch. And then wh- while I build the product, I worry about what's the best user experience for my customer, not how do I design a button or how do I build a uh, onboarding experience or how the, all, all of these things are ready for you to go. The way I think about it is there is there is um, there is probably it's probably a lot of fun to design Lego pieces but it's a lot more fun to design like the Star Wars kit. Um, and it's that's what teams want to do versus redesigning and, and re-implementing and rebuilding each Lego piece independently. I, for one, cannot wait until I can start playing with Legos with my son um, and building like a Millennium Falcon or something like that. That would be awesome, yeah. <laughs> so when you think about that macro problem that you kind of touched on there of you're all about enabling all of these different product teams with a core kit that they then go make the, you know, their X-Wing or their Death Star or whatever with. When you look at that, that ability to upgrade, maintain, curate, manage, give new tools and new building blocks to these these constituents, how do you view that problem and and how has that sort of taken shape as as the systems matured? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> I see why Jihad wanted me to answer that one. All right. Uh, upgrade, upgrading is, um, frankly, a harder problem for us to solve than adoption. Uh, adoption is largely grassroots and organic, which is fantastic. But um, product teams, consumers of the design system generally want to build their thing and they, they never want to think or touch the design system ever again. But um, when you've built it on top of a framework like we did with Angular initially, they have to because Angular is introducing breaking changes into that dependency tree there. And you wind up upgrading Angular and needing to upgrade Clarity or wanting to upgrade Clarity with the the new uh, components or uh, new designs and whatnot, and also having to upgrade Angular. So that was one of several reasons and rationales behind our move to become framework independent, to go to a world where the atomic pieces, the Legos, that are inside the design system can be upgraded fairly quickly, fairly easily. Fewer breaking changes, less dependency on factors outside of the design system, I guess the best way to put it. Yeah, I think that this is kind of a, I guess the best way to put it is a a problem that doesn't get quite enough attention. I think that because most design systems are, you know, somewhere between one and five years old with, I'd say like the average being probably about two years, people haven't really gone through a lot of framework changes. There's been, sure, upgrades in Angular versions or React versions or or whatever, but, you know, React isn't going to be around for forever. Angular isn't going to be around for forever. So, so what's next? And how do people start to plan that transition into something like web components or, uh, you know, whatever next JavaScript framework becomes like the, the hot thing, right? So... You know, you guys have taken a pretty smart approach to that with this sort of like framework uh, agnosticism. Tell me a little bit more about how you've done that and how you're thinking about things like building web components into your system. Oh, yeah. So the web component library, well, it just made a lot of sense. 
Um, it was driven by a business need uh, initially because we were acquiring a lot of companies and many of those companies coming in were using React and our design system components, our library, uh, was written in Angular. That kind of put some pressure on us to consider how are we going to support these React teams? How are we going to bring that design coherence and consistency across the framework layer? And the more we thought about it and the more we investigated it, we saw that, you know, it made more sense to get the, the design system out of the framework conversation entirely. Like uh, even now, Svelte is becoming very popular and it's had probably the yep. biggest jump since Vue. So, uh, you know, teams that are acquired that use Svelte, what are they going to do? Um, so getting out of that framework conversation was really helpful. And it kind of goes back to Jihad's water faucet analogy where, you know, you talk about the water not working and whatnot. Well, uh, if you build your design system on top of a framework, you're basically putting your water pipes on your kitchen floor, right? So it's, you know, <laughs> so if you want to tile your, your kitchen floor or change the tile in your kitchen floor, you got to pull up all your water piping. There was this inversion of layers there that, that the framework independence really helped with. Yeah. So John, why don't you explain the water faucet analogy real quick? Because I love this. It's a great way of thinking about uh, how people view a design system when they're in a, a downstream product team. If anybody listening works on a platform team, it's probably true not just for a design system team, but pla any any platform team. And, and the example we always, or operations teams too, actually. And, and the example we always uh, share internally is you know, nobody walks home, opens their water faucet, and then admires the amount of work it takes to take water, purify it, make sure it's actually ready to drink, uh, run it through pipes that go for miles across a city or a town, get it to your water faucet immediately, possibly even heat it if you wanted to, and then you grab a cup of water and walk away. Most people open the faucet, use it, you know, uh, and, and move on. The only time you care about the water faucet is when it doesn't work, <laughs> is when you open it and nothing comes out or, or dirty water comes out or whatever it is that you need to worry about. Um, but even when that happens, you're frustrated because something that you take for granted didn't work versus you're thinking about all of the challenges that could have happened in the piping and, and systems put together to make it happen. Um, I see design systems the same way. If you work on a product team, a design system either works and of course it does, or it doesn't, and we have a problem. And that's kind of the relationship you need to, to figure out how to deal with, especially as you do upgrades or change management. That's a great way of thinking about it. The idea of infrastructure, plumbing, you know, all of these are such common analogies, but I, I love the visual idea of walking into my kitchen and, and flipping on the faucet and having nothing happen. And just that shock and amazement in that moment and, you know, maybe you wiggle the handle a couple of times and and eventually you give up and, and you know, walk away in disgust. I, I love that idea because I've definitely watched that play out at a product level inside of inside of companies before. I, I, I don't even know who to call if that happens. Like, I know when power goes out because that's, you know, that sometimes happens. But, um, you know, if, if the water doesn't come out, I don't even have I don't even, you know, I'll have to go, go Google who runs water in my, my city to make it happen. So it, it, it's that level of expectation of consistency, which, by the way, means it's really good infrastructure. But it also means when it breaks, it breaks. I got a touchless uh, water faucet for my kitchen sink, and it's wonderful to watch how confused my friends are 
when they go to to wash their hands and move the tap and nothing happens. Um, and I'm like, hey, you have to wave your hand under it. And then they get it. And there's this realization that there's this new technology and new way of thinking things. So they don't have to, like, you know, expose themselves to, to COVID or whatever that's hanging out on my faucet tap. You can just wave your hand. But it's interesting to see that that kind of, uh, you know, learning that has to take place to even use something as simple as turning on the tap. And by the way, that, that might be a really good analogy to carry to carry on and on change management of the visual design and design systems, which is also a challenge in addition to the, the just the technical changes. Um, one of the things we struggle with uh, thinking about is how do we not make clarity the reason for inconsistency? Mm-hmm. So if we change the style of a button tomorrow, different teams will upgrade at different cycles, possibly up to 12 months not upgrading. How do we not make it where clarity is the, is the reason we have inconsistency between products that clarity made consistent just a few years ago? Right. You have your own upstream problem because you're in so many different products. Exactly. Yeah. So when you think about that sort of model and, and getting back to kind of Scott's comment earlier about tile floors and pipes on top of them, you know, you guys have a pretty established maturity model for the way that you think about the stuff, the actual content that goes into clarity where there's this kind of like component pattern platform sequence that you guys have thought about. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that and kind of how that that might relate to to this, uh, you know, water in your home metaphor we're running with? Yeah, all I can imagine is water pipes on top of on top of the floor right now. So thanks, Scott. Um, I also just remodeled my kitchen like <laughs> like half the world did in COVID. So I very uh, you're hitting home with those. Scott. Yeah. <laughs> I think the thinking on, on the maturity model was that really it's it's a combination of how can we drive adoption and what matters most. When you look at visual consistency of products and services that, that VMware publishes, 80% of the visual consistency is really in four or five components. If you get the, the fonts, the colors, the header, the buttons, the input fields the same way, um, you look similar. I can tell this is coming from VMware, especially if it's unique enough color-wise or font-wise to recognize it. Um, so starting with components made a lot, of th- a lot of sense because it allowed us to move the needle on what we wanted at the time, which is visual consistency. From there, you just have to continue to complete the set of critical components, especially difficult ones like data grid um, that you have to, to ship and make happen. Once you have these sets of components, you can then start thinking about, okay, we need to build patterns that will use these components, one or more of these components together, um, uh, and put these patterns together in ways that are usable on day one. Um, and from there, obviously, you can build a UI platform that can build micro frontends or whatever whatever direction you want to go. When we think about that maturity model, one of the things that, that stands out to me is like right now, so much of the focus in design systems is around components. Like, let me build up a component library. Let me get those baseline pieces of UI out there that, like you said, I can recognize immediately as being a, a part of my product ecosystem. I think where people are a little less familiar is when you start to think about things in terms of patterns. And and then ultimately, I think that very few people are thinking about a UI platform. Help bring us along on this. So when when I, I'm thinking about a component library and the buttons and the headers and uh, you know the cards and the form fields and everything like that that's in there, when you talk about constructing those into a pattern, what are you really talking about there? Yeah, I think I think the thing that might help in the mental model of how this works is a lot of the time design systems start in a company that's trying to say, we're building different products in different teams. And after we build them, we're going to make a solution out of them that connects these products together. And now we have a solution. 
When you think the other way around, when you think actually we're going to think in terms of solutions, end-to-end solutions, and then break them down into executable chunks that different teams are going to pick up, the whole concept of what you're building is different. It sounds very simple. You know, we're building simple products and putting them into solutions, solution into different sets of pieces. But the reality is if you're starting with a solution, you have to build certain sets of patterns and experiences that are consistent for that solution to work. And then you have to figure out how do I break them in a way when two teams are working on the solution, they're not building these two patterns differently. Right. Um, it's, it's kind of a like a mental, a shift in the mental model of this, um, which brings with it, do I give that team the chance to use a bunch of, pattern, a bunch of components, put them together, or am I going to give them a pattern? So at the end of the day, when we go back to the solution, we have these patterns work together. Yeah, I think that's great. And so, you know, a concrete example of a pattern for you guys, what does that look like? A, a good example would be um, uh, onboarding. Like if you're onboarding to a VMware service, there are certain sets of things that you, you need and ways you can configure these things. And even though onboarding will use a, a stack view, possibly buttons, uh, possibly uh progress bar at the top to tell you where, so different types of components. You can put these together in many, many different ways that for a user, not only would they look different in terms of visually different, they would actually be confusing, especially if I'm onboarding on two different services back to back. So building onboarding as a pattern becomes essential if we're going to say, hey, we have a cohesive set of services as VMware as a company. Um, and, and you can, if you learn it, if you learn how to use it once, you, you've learned how to use it forever. It's kind of the faucet thing. Um, all faucets should operate the same way if it's in the same house. Otherwise, I don't know, is this touch or am I going to have to open it or, you know, is it both? Right. No, I love it. I I also really like the idea of, of moving beyond the idea of components, right? Because one of the hard parts that people have conceptually with design systems is, like you said, there's no solution innately there, right? Like, great, I can see a button or I can see a card or I can see, you know, a hero or a carousel or something like that. But innately that's not providing any direct user value because people don't consume those components in isolation. They consume those collections of components and oftentimes those collections of components attached to a state or a sequence or something else that is a part of actually delivering that solution in in user land. And I think your guys' idea of how do I focus on that solution set and build patterns around that is a really powerful way of thinking about a practical way for components to be valuable to users. Now, when I think about that next step into this you know, UI platform side of things, this is where things get really fun and kind of crazy. And this brings together a whole bunch of ideas around um, you know, design tokens and the way that they interact with uh, uh, patterns and the way that these all come together to really build applications, for lack of a better word, but really like more of a service design for uh, a design system. So I really love your guys' take on this. Go ahead and just explain that in, in your own words, how you go from a pattern to a UI platform. So I, I can start with the UI platform piece, but I think Scott has has a lot of interesting stuff to share about how we think of design tokens and, and, and uh, uh, web components as an independent framework, independent way to get there. I think the UI platform, I would quickly say, we're, we're, we're heading towards a world where really the focus is into an experiences of what the user wants to do versus where we had, at least in enterprise software, where we had different sets of products that, that you stitch together as a user. To get to that world, you're really building experiences that should be possible to use and reuse in different ways, depending on the vertical, are we selling into healthcare or government, depending on the 
product. You need to configure networking before you start the cloud environment. Uh, but one is built by the network team, one by the cloud team. There are all of these matrix of things we can put together. How are you going to, the, the question a UI platform needs to answer, and, and we haven't really cracked it, but how do you build these things as experiences and then still be able to put them together as workflows without having to always start at, you know, button, carousel, stack view, whatever it is, right. versus right. starting at, I need onboarding, then I need network configuration, then I need something else. That, that's a really difficult problem to do. Um, and, and Scott can share a little bit more about our thinking on the how, how we're building the infrastructure through design tokens, framework independence, and all these things that are going to allow us to bring these UIs together. No, and this is where I get really excited too, because I fundamentally believe that this is where this is all headed, right? Like if we if we stop at components, we're only really realizing maybe you know five ten percent of what we really could be doing with these sort of systems based approaches. So I love this concept of it's not just about like delivering components. It's not just about delivering stitching together components is like collections or, or more uh, uh, robust components. It's about actually like these huge hunks of of user value that ultimately is, is represented in some action that they would take inside of a product. Yeah. And uh, in terms of how we build this all up, a good conceptual model for me that I've returned to, the idea of atomic design, you, you have the atoms, which are almost all entirely in the design system. You have the molecules, most of which are in the design system. They have organisms, which are kind of these patterns, which can be both micro and macro, uh, especially when you start talking about web components. And web components can be infinitely big, right? Uh, you can have web components with web components and web components, and your entire UI can be just a single web component if you want. And um, with a little bit of massaging in React, it'll work in all frameworks. Um, no matter what the product team chooses to use. And that's one that's one of the directions that the framework independence has, has led us towards. It, it makes it easier for us to uh, embrace this atomic design principle. Uh, but it also highlights community, right? So if you're in the open source, it's your community. But even if you're not open source as a design system, you're going to wind up in the community anyway. So the design system community, those those are the people that are going to be building these larger patterns uh, because no design system team is big enough to build all the patterns that a product is going to need. Right. There's almost too much that you could build in sort of mm -hmm. these systems. So it's a lot more about deciding like what to build. Exactly. And then also back to your point around not starting from scratch every time. Right. What can you go borrow? Right. True. Like. I think that probably the login experience is one of those things that's probably been done a few mm -hmm. million times. Mm -hmm. And so maybe there's a way that you could grab a login experience pattern from elsewhere that means you wouldn't have to build it yourself. True. And, you know, in that kind of contribution, even in a, in a closed system, not like an open source design system, that kind of contribution may come from outside the design system team, to be honest. That's why it's important to be able to sort of groom a community uh, within your company so that way you can all trust each other's judgment and, and you're all sort of innately on the same page. We're most of the way there. <laughs> I wouldn't say we're 100% there, but you know that's, that's I think, part of the real work of a design system that uh, a lot of people don't, don't consider. Yeah, and I think a lot of these concepts are still pretty new, right? Like there's, there's a lot of greenfield here to kind of decide like, what this approach really looks like. I don't think that there's a system that I'm aware of anyway 
today that is fully based around micro front ends or, or, you know, these really pattern based approaches. I think that people are trying to build that and are working really hard towards it. And it's honestly something that we're really working very hard on at Knapsack as well is to try to figure out what these actual constructs look like. It's pretty easy to say, like, there's this piece of UI, there's this bit of design, this bit of code, you link those things together with some documentation in a common workspace and, and you have a component. It's a lot harder to say, like, what does a login pattern look like inside of a, a system or inside of a tool? I think we're all sort of, of stampeding in the same direction. And I'm very excited for, for when we start to, to see these things, you know, in practice in a lot of different places. And I think a lot of uh, these patterns, the interesting thing is, is uh, it really tests every part of the system. It tests the technical ability to build these experiences and patterns together. It tests the visual design abilities to predict changes, to predict how these things are going to look in different environments. And it also tests your change management as it relates to how teams work together. Who builds a login experience? Uh, is it the design systems team? Is it the, the you know, most important product in the company? Even onboarding, who builds onboarding? Or more interestingly, who builds the configuration settings experience if that's... So there are all of these questions around who builds what that start to get really interesting and most of these are questions you actually don't have to ask with components. Components are built by the design system. Uh, the product is built by the product team. Done. It's easy. Uh, with patterns, it's who builds what piece of what pattern, who maintains it, who keeps it moving when when, when the design system change. It, it gets a lot more interesting, which means a lot more opportunities. Yeah, and this this sort of upending of the way that we think about building our apps today. Um, yeah, I think that's what I'm most excited for is... For a long time, when I've been building applications for the web, I've always kind of wondered at the, the you know, sort of bespoke nature of the way that we build product. And that's just kind of an innate thing that has existed out of necessity, less than intention. And I think that the thing that I'm most excited about with these pattern-based approaches is being able to zero in on the intention of how we build these applications to base it in research, to base it in accessibility, to base it in a set of best practices for what that ideal onboarding experience should be. And then to be able to share that very broadly across an ecosystem of applications to ultimately the benefit of users. So kind of shifting gears for a quick second, I mentioned design tokens a minute ago. I know you guys have been thinking really hard on this topic and we actually just uh, spent a lot of time ourselves sort of getting together a group of industry experts to specifically discuss this. I'd love to hear your guys' take on how you're using tokens to help manage things either at the component level or the pattern level inside of your your system. So the design tokens are kind of a, a glue between the component and the pattern level, right? So when going back to the atomic design, you have the atoms, molecules, organisms, la, la, la. Um, there's actually a layer smaller than an atom. Um, you can call it a particle layer or a quark layer, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and that's where design tokens live. Um, Schrodinger's token. Schrodinger's token, yes. Does it exist? Only if you look at Actually, we... Uh, anyway, I'm not going to nerd out. But um, <laughs> so our design tokens are a shared almost design language. So you hear people talk about design language and it's... You know, this is how big our borders are, and these are the colors that for a hover state or whatnot. And really, the design tokens are sort of the implementation of that information into something that's consumable outside of the design system team. The design tokens, they ensure that no matter what people are building, if they use the tokens, it's going to look 
consistent. The coherence is going to be built in, which is pretty huge. And uh, it also, uh, for us, I don't know about others, but our design tokens are platform agnostic. So we have teams that build uh, Android apps and we have teams that build iOS apps. And largely we've been a, a web-focused design system. But now people can take those tokens and import them into uh, their Android build or import them into you know, their, their Swift code. And they can use them, the very foundational pieces of our design system, to create their own apps. So now we have coherence across platforms. So uh, design tokens are pretty exciting. Um, and I think they're a really big piece in kind of having like an unspoken agreement between all levels of the community. Yeah, absolutely. I love the innate portability of design tokens. And I also like the idea of of beginning to broaden their adoption as as like the the common thing, mm-hmm. right? Like the the first thing that you think about when you think about adopting a design system should be around that token set because that sort of primes uh, everything else that, that follows. Absolutely. And changes at the tokens level um, cascade out across everything, really. And, and that makes it really easy to uh, try new changes, try new looks. You know, if we wanted to make all of our buttons bright orange, it's a few lines of code. Whereas before, it would be a whole lot more effort uh, digging into the CSS and SAS variables and such. Awesome. Well, I've really enjoyed uh, having this opportunity to to talk with you all. It's been great to hear about the way you've set up Clarity, the way you think about the maturity models of design systems, and even touching on design tokens a little bit. Uh, we always like to end these shows with uh, you talking about how design systems and systems thinking has sort of invaded your personal life. So I'd love to hear like what's ended up becoming a, a design or or systems based practice in your day to day life as a result of your work on Clarity. <laughs> I'm still thinking about that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you guys can, I, think of I, one, I could no throw one idea. out there um, to give Jihad time to think. Thank mostly. you. Oh, you're welcome. So um, I make music for fun. And not all of it's great, um, but it's something. And it was actually all the exploration into design tokens and stuff just got me thinking about kind of music and frequencies and tone in terms of uh, the same way a designer would look at like colors in a design token, like a color palette almost, which is kind of cool. I'm not original in that thinking at all. Um, there are other people who probably thought this before and probably have much better approaches to it, but it was it was kind of interesting in taking something that I'd always acquainted with my ears and applying sort of like this design token approach to building instrumentation arrangements and all of that. Definitely. I, I played um, <laughs> uh classical piano for like 10 years Brilliant. back in in high school and everything like that and i haven't played in a very long time but thinking about music and music theory and notation and everything like that it, it has a funny way of bubbling to the top of my mind whenever i'm thinking about a designing or architecting a design system i still don't have one <laughs> <laughs> actually the, the only thing i can think of is um when, when the pandemic started, when COVID started and we were all working from home, I got a little bit into video editing um, and uh, video editing and, and stop motion videos just as a way to kind of think about passing time, which was a lot of fun. And a lot of video editing is about 
or in my, my very short experience, a lot of video editing is about um, transitions and small fillers that go between different pieces of the video that most of the time are pretty similar, like, you know, the clouds moving fast or, you know, um, move from a black surface to a black surface. So you're able to kind of transition. Um, and I started whenever I see something, uh, when I go on a walk or something to take a video, to think of it as a small piece of the set of components I have to put these fillers between the different videos. Now I, I think about all the scenes I see as I walk differently. Um, I think of it, is this, is this part of the library or not, or not, or should this be part of the library or not? That's awesome. I love that you both pick things that were related to, to content. Like, I think that it's, it's so interesting to think about like the content aspect of design systems and how, you know, these are containers for content. That's what we're designing. And these, these viewpoints that we all take towards the content that we're creating, be that video or be that music thinking about the structure for how that that content fits into the system is a really cool kind of of daily application to the way that we think about this stuff. Well, awesome. I really appreciate you guys being on the podcast. It's been awesome to get to know you a little bit. Great to chat. We're going to put in the show notes a way that you can all check out Clarity. And uh, I look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Same. Thanks so much for having us. This was fun. Yeah. Thank you for having us. That's all for today. This has been another episode of the Design Systems Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or a topic you'd like to know more about, find us on Twitter at the DSPod. We'd love to hear from you with show ideas, recommendations, questions, or comments. As always, this pod is brought to you by Knapsack. You can check us out at knapsack.cloud. Have a great day.